If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, as we continue to look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We looked at verses 14 through 21 last Sunday. Uh, This week we will just be in two verses, verses 22 and 23. And hopefully you'll see why I make no apologies for going a little bit slow at this point. There's much to, to see and understand just in these these words here in verses 22 and 23. It's estimated that 95% of the world's oceans remain unexplored. 95%. They, the ocean is not a complete mystery to us, though, of course. We know something about the wonders of the Great Barrier Reef. We know things about the depths of the Mariana Trench just off the coast of Guam. Amazing feat, amazing thing, I guess I should say. Um, we've witnessed the power through videos. I don't know if you watch Planet Earth, but things like the great white shark or the magnitude of, of blue whales. We know about giant squids. Um, though it's actually only within the past five years that anyone actually had a video of a, of a, of a giant squid in the wild, as it were. The only thing that we, the only reason we knew about giant squid is they washed up on shores or were found in the stomachs of sperm whale. Isn't that amazing? And so it's a mysterious place. They, uh, we, we, but, but still we've uncovered 5% of the ocean. Uh, we've uncovered amazing things. Yet how many things, how many wonders remain unknown about the ocean? There are depths that we have never seen. There are trenches that if we tried to enter into them very quickly, we would be crushed by the water pressure alone, not to mention what might devour us when we got down to those depths. I think given that the hymn writer rightly draws from the ocean when he writes, Oh, the deep, deep Love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. How amazing it is that we know the wonders of God's ways in the world and the far reaches of his sovereignty in history and even in our own stories. What a miracle of God's grace that we can in some way grasp the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God that is actually beyond knowing, the scriptures say. How great God's mercy to us, to us here in this place, in these last days, who have seen the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We've looked at Jesus and found that he is full of grace and truth. We've seen his life and his death and his resurrection as an expression of the core character of who God is. And yet it feels like 5%. It feels like there's so much more that we could know of who God is, that there are so many deeper depths that we could dive into. And I think here, as we look at Acts 2, just 22 and 23, that, that Peter takes us to one of these deep places, a place where it feels like if we went much deeper, the pressure would crush us. And so we join him and we sort of float above a deep valley in the ocean of the knowledge of God and just think about how deep and how far and how wide his greatness is. Even what we're able to hear and understand from Peter's words about the grand plan of redemption and the love of God makes our heads spin. And yet 
I still want to invite you to join me on this bit of a deep sea dive, uh, a chance to know in some deeper way who God is and what he's done for us in the salvation that we have in Jesus. Something we can we can glimpse, something we can look forward to knowing even more in the new kingdom, but something we can catch a glimpse of even now. Before I read those two verses, let me... Um, Let's kind of re-enter the world of, of Acts 2 again. Uh, just remind you where we are in this narrative. It's the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after the resurrection of, of Jesus. You remember Pentecost was a harvest celebration and had also become a time to remember the covenant that God made uh, with his people by giving the law at Sinai. And yet how interesting that just as Jesus took the Passover meal and transformed it into the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate at the end of the service, so too the coming of the Spirit takes the significance of the day of Pentecost and now shifts it. And it marks it as the the harvest of souls. It marks it as the beginning of the new covenant age of the Spirit. Everything has, has changed with Christ. And it's on this day that the 120 disciples of Jesus were gathered together in the upper room, and they were praying. And as they're there, they hear a rushing wind, and they saw tongues of fire rest on each person that was present, which was followed by them each telling of the mighty works of God in all of the, the various languages that had gathered there in Jerusalem for the, for the, peace, for the feast of Pentecost. Some in the crowd um, formed around them and and started to wonder what this all meant. And and we know that others mocked them and said that they were drunk. And you remember last week we saw that that Peter stood up, surrounded by the other 11 disciples, and he preaches the first sermon of the church as we know it. He says to everyone gathered, he says, This is not what you think. We are not drunk. Rather, this is what you heard from the prophet Joel. Here in your midst, you are witnessing to the, you are, you are witnessing the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And as Peter quotes Joel, he announces to the crowd that the last days spoken of by Joel and by the other, other prophets have now come about, that they are witnessing the pouring out of the Spirit in an unrestrained and indiscriminate way. And because this, this is the, the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, on men and women, on young and old, on rich and poor, it means that everyone who is speaking in this moment is a prophet, that all of God's children through faith in Jesus have come to have a special status with God and an intimate relational knowledge of him that was reserved for the prophets but is now open to all who put their faith in Christ. A new age has come. The last days of the Spirit's full power arrive and are still here. How has this happened? How, how do we enter into the fullness? How do we enter into this power, the abiding presence of God? Just as Joel says in his prophecy, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And now what Peter is going to do is he's going to announce to the crowd that Jesus is that Lord. Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah. And he has shown it through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We've said that the Spirit delights in exalting, in honoring Jesus. 
And so Peter, in this moment, full of the Spirit, announces the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus to everyone who will listen. You can see that Jesus is central to his message. If you look at the whole message that he gives, his name is repeated. This Jesus occurs over and over again. We find it in verse 22. This Jesus, he introduces him as as Jesus of Nazareth. And then in verses 23, verse 32, and verse 36, he keeps talking about this Jesus. He's explaining and expounding on who Christ is. And if you look at the sermon as a whole, Peter also emphasizes what what is done to Jesus, and in fact, what Jesus himself is doing on our behalf. In verse 22, Jesus is attested. In verse 23, he is delivered up, crucified, and killed. In verses 24 and 32, he is raised. In verse 33, he is exalted and received. And in verse 36, we find that God has made him Lord in Christ, attested, delivered up, crucified, killed, raised, exalted, received, and made Lord in Christ. These are the words that are going to form the sermons that we have for this sun, this Sunday and then probably at least next Sunday, if not longer. And my hope would be that we would see the great work that God has done in and through Christ on our behalf and that we together would exalt Christ as Peter does here, that we would see the depth of our sin and our guilt before God. But we would also see the greatness of God's salvation for us, what he has done for us in Christ. So my desire is that we would, in some sense, not just know, but even feel and, and, and respond with our, our very souls to what, Christ has, what God has done for us in Christ. And coupled with that, that desire is the big idea of Peter's sermon and of this sermon and probably of next week's sermon. And it's this, Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's what Peter wants us to know. That's what he wants the crowd to know. And so it's what I want you to know and to walk away with. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is King. He reigns over all and he is Christ. He is Messiah. He is the Savior. Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's where the whole thing is driving there in verse 36. Know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. With that in mind, look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter continues after quoting Joel and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Just a few brief notes to consider before we look at how that we consider that Jesus is attested crucified and killed and delivered up. So these are just some introductory remarks and that'll be the then those three phrases will be the bulk of our of our time together. But first we, we note the audience again and the audience is the Jewish people. The audience is the Jewish people. We're reminded again that that Peter's audience in particular is the men of Israel as he says. 
He is speaking to those who were a part of the, the covenant promises, who were in Jerusalem celebrating the giving of the law at Sinai. So this is why Peter is at pains to draw in the witnesses of the Old Testament. It's why he quotes Joel and why later he will quote David in the, in the Psalms because he wants his brothers in the Jewish faith to see that Jesus is the anointed one that they have been waiting for. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and shadows, but they missed it. And rather than exalting him, they crucified him. And yet he wants them to know that there is still mercy available to everyone who will repent and believe in Jesus. As I thought about that, I was reminded again that we Gentiles have been grafted in. That's what Paul says about it. We have been brought into the people of God, through not through our physical heritage stemming from Abraham, but we are the people of faith. We are the nations that are blessed through Abraham. We are Abraham's children by faith. We are God's people now. The audience is the men of Israel. There's another call to listen. That's another thing just to note. Men of Israel, hear these words. Peter calls his readers to listen, to hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of God. Listen to God's word. See his truth. Because his words are words of power. They're words of life. These are not just any ordinary words. They're specific words. They're words about Jesus. And I know just another a third introductory thought is that Jesus was a real person. Jesus was a real person. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. And then he begins, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus was a common name. It was a variant on the name Joshua, meaning God saves. And so Jesus is often identified as the specific Jesus by these various ways. So he is Jesus, the man from the town of Nazareth, that town where little good ever came from. He is Jesus, the the son of Joseph, the carpenter. He is Jesus, the son of Mary, whose birth was mysterious and controversial. And so Peter here is speaking of Jesus. Jesus was a real human being who had lived and walked right among these people not two months ago. He was there. We're only 50 days out of when all this had happened. Jesus was a man that had lived. He was a man that probably the authorities thought they didn't have to worry about anymore. And yet Peter is going to change that. Of course, this is because Jesus was no ordinary man. And that's what Peter wants us to to see that this man from Nazareth has been made both Lord and Christ. So Peter speaks, and he begins by saying that Jesus was attested. He was attested, meaning he was shown, he was proven, he was confirmed, he was verified by God to be the Messiah. And God verified him as the Messiah through his works through his wonders and his signs, he was attested. In the movie Toy Story, one of my favorite Pixar ones, Buzz Lightyear lands on Andy's bed and he is convinced that he is the real Buzz Lightyear and that he is able to fly, he says. But Woody, the cowboy, is not convinced. So do you remember what he says to him? He says, oh yeah, prove it. And so Buzz sort of proves that he can 
fly by falling with style. So I think we're all like Woody. We all want proof. We want solid evidence that something is the way that, that we are told, that the person really is who they say they are. And this is our society, isn't it? So you're going to go get your license renewed, and you say, this is my new address. And the person behind the glass says, prove it. And so you have to have some sort of piece of mail that says, this is actually where I live. It's got my name, and it's got this address. This is where I live. You walk out of Sam's Club, or you walk out of Costco, and you have a, a cart full of groceries and by virtue of them being in your cart, you're saying, I purchased these things. And the lady with the highlighter at the door says, prove it. And so you got to pull out your receipt and say, yes, I actually paid for all this. I didn't just fill up my cart and try to walk out the door. Paul Simon says in a song, proof is the bottom line for everyone. And so Peter says that Jesus has been attested. He has been proven. How? By what God did through him and the fact that there are witnesses of everything that God did through him. And what did God do through Jesus? Well, he did much more than Buzz Lightyear ever pretended to do. We see that in these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Mighty works. Works that could only be done by the power of God. Works like the calming of the sea or the feeding of 5,000 people with one boy's small lunch. Wonders. The gospel speaks about all that Jesus did and how people were amazed and astonished and astounded by his miracles. The way that he raised a small girl to life. The way that he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Mighty works, wonders, signs. Signs that pointed to something. Everything that Jesus did pointed to the kingdom of God's arrival, to the fact that the kingdom of God was breaking in amongst the people. Something amazing was happening. Isaiah 35, 5-6, Jesus quotes this to John the Baptist when John wonders, are you really the Messiah? And he, he says that the, that the Messiah was predicted to do these signs and wonders, announcing that, that God's going to visit his people. And he says that then the eyes of the blind, this is Isaiah 35, 5-6, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. At the time of the miracles, many people saw them for what they, they were. Luke seven sixteen says, just after Jesus raises the widow's son, it says that fear seized them all. Fear seized the crowd. And they glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. That's what was happening. God had visited his people. And so with these words, mighty works, wonders, signs, Peter calls those who hear his voice to remember all that Jesus had done. And in a sense, he asks, what else these signs could mean other than that this man was and is the Messiah? Peter holds before his hearers all that that Jesus had done. And he says, you guys saw all of this. It was done right amongst you. Just as Peter and the disciples were witnesses of all that 
that Jesus had said and done, so too everyone who lived in that day had seen and heard everything that Jesus had done. They were done in their midst. There was no denying it. And whether they believed in him initially or not, they were witnesses of what Jesus had done. They were witnesses of the miracles that he performed, of the way that he spoke with authority, of his knowledge and insight into the scriptures, his knowledge and insight into their very hearts, of his authority over nature, his authority over demons, his authority over disease, his authority over death itself. They saw that the kingdom was being announced and that the glory of God was being displayed amongst them. They saw it. Every one of them saw it. And yet witnessing the hand of God working through the life of Jesus, his son, the people did not exalt him as the Messiah. He was proven. He was attested. That's who he had to be. But they did not believe. Just as many in our day reject the testimony of Jesus' mighty works. They reject his wonders. They reject his signs. Maybe you do. Don't believe that he did any of this stuff or that he was who he said he was. Instead, we find that though he was attested, they crucified and killed him. That's the second thought. Second couple words, crucified and killed. Jesus was crucified and killed. It's in verse 23. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Imagine how bold Peter is in saying this. Jesus had just been crucified, and now Peter is going to stand up bold and unashamed and announce to this crowd that has gathered around him, to those who had witnessed all that Jesus had said and done, he says, you guys were responsible for crucifying and killing the Messiah. He was attested before you, but you rejected him and you murdered him. The words are graphic. You crucified and killed. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon called The The Mystery of the Cross, I commend it to you. You can get it for free online. The Mystery of the Cross on these two verses. He says that the word that's used here for crucify carries the idea of fastening to something. that, That Peter, by the inspiration of the Spirit, used this word to awaken their guilt. And in saying that they fastened him to a cross, Lloyd-Jones says that Peter, he said, he wants them to hear the sound of the hammer, hammering every single nail into their own Holy One, their own Messiah, the Son of God. This was done through the hands of lawless men, the hands of Gentiles, those who had not been given God's law. It was done by the Romans. They... They had handed over, the Jewish people had handed over their Messiah into the hands of wicked, lawless people and said, kill him. Of course, the reality is that whoever had passed the judgment or driven the nails, they were all guilty, just as all of us are guilty before God. Jesus was attested. Jesus was proven. He was authenticated. He was shown to be Lord and Christ by the works he did even before the resurrection. And the question this this text asks us then is, would you reject him? Would you crucify him afresh in your heart? Would you suppress what God has revealed in his word regarding who Jesus was? Sin is blinding. Sin blinds us to many things, but one of the greatest things that it shields our eyes from, surely is the overwhelming proof that Jesus truly is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. 
and in our sin, hiding our guilt, rather than bow before him, we would choose rather to crucify him. We would hand him over to lawless men. But his blood is on our hands. Our sins have nailed him to the cross. We are guilty. We are guilty of rebellion against the Savior who was sent. We are guilty of rebelling against the God who made us. Peter's so explicit in this condemnation of the crowd. He announces, you have killed your king. You have killed your Messiah. And yet even as he draws out the truth of their responsibility, of their guilt in his death, he reminds us that Jesus was delivered up. So he was attested. He was crucified and killed. And third, he was delivered up. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus was not some sort of cosmic accident. And it wasn't a moment when the father found himself incapable of rescuing his son from the hands of wicked men. It was not a day when the will of human beings thwarted the will of God. Rather, even as the hands of rebellious men delivered Jesus into the hands of wicked, lawless men who then nailed Jesus to the cross, it was finally the hand of God that had delivered Jesus into their hands. This, the darkest day in history, was part of God's predetermined plan. It was part of his divine foreknowledge whereby he knows all things and he brings all of his purposes to pass and does it without sin. Do not brush past the depth of the character of God and the vastness of his knowledge and his power because they are here in some seed form that can grow in our hearts and our minds. And I invite you again, let's plunge these depths for a moment. Do it until it squeezes your brain just a little bit because it has to. If we could fully explain God, if we could fully understand him and his purposes, then we would be him. But we are not God, and so we cannot expect that we will understand his person and his ways without there being some sort of mystery. And here in God's planning of the cross, there is a great, great mystery. Psalm 147.5 says of our God, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah 14.24 The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 42.8-9 I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, before they happen, I tell you of them. In Isaiah 46, 8-11, to God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time, Times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Our God knew all of history before it ever happened, and he knows everything that will happen. And he not only knew history, but he planned and he purposed it for his glory, and nothing could stop it from happening if it was his will. God is Alpha and Omega, and he knows the beginning from the end, and he purposes it. So look at Acts 2 and let it overwhelm you and press on you, because God did not only know that the cross was going to happen, and God didn't only purpose and plan it, but it says there that he himself delivered up Jesus to die. There's no other way to read it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's what Paul echoes in in that great text in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but what did he do? He delivered him up for us all so that we might also with him, so that he might also with him freely give us all things. Surely God could have spared his son, couldn't he? He could have delivered him from the hands of sinful men. He could have done it in any moment. But he didn't. So consider this mystery. God does not deliver Jesus from the hands of sinful men because God had already delivered up the Son into the hands of sinful men, ordaining that they crucify him. And as he does that, these men are fully responsible for their wicked actions. They are 100% guilty of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that for those even that day who crucified him, who would believe on the day of Pentecost, would in fact cleanse them from that guilt. Do you follow that? They killed him. They delivered him up. He shed his blood. And now 50 days later, are some of them in the crowd? Surely. And now they will be cleansed by the very blood that they are guilty of shedding. There's a tension here, right? And I think we should just feel the pressure of it. Feel this pressure. But in our wrestling, we should not miss the great mystery and the great wonder that I think is at the core that, that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit determined from eternity past that Jesus the Son would be sent so that he could deliver, so that he would be delivered into the hands of wicked men so that he could save those wicked men and save us. So as you think about the sovereignty of God, divine sovereignty, and, and our responsibility, human responsibility for sin, don't miss what, what is shining sort of in between them, almost like, like the presence of God that exists, existed between the cherubim on the, on the Holy of Holies. If you remember that, those angel wings, and this is where the presence of God was. And there's something amazing here between these two things. There is in this sort of Holy of Holies, as we look into it, we see the unfathomable depths of the love and the mercy of God. That the Father sent the Son into the world and that the Spirit led him through this life knowing 
that the end of their plan would be the murder of Jesus. That he planned it from the very beginning. And he did it for our salvation. When pain and anguish come into our lives, we as human beings are often known to say, you know, if I knew it was going to be this hard, I never would have done it. If I, if I knew that it would result in this, then I would have made a different choice. Think about God who knows all things and God who declares the end from the beginning, knowing that this is what would happen if he sent his son into the world. And not only did he know it, but he foreordained it. He planned it. And he did more than just allow it to happen. He, he ordained and planned it. Jesus was delivered over by God to Pilate and to the Roman soldiers. It was by the Jewish authorities, but Jesus had given it, God had given Jesus to those authorities as well. And ultimately, it's the Father who delivers him up. Jesus says this to Pilate. John 19, 10 and 11. Jesus refuses to answer any of Pilate's questions. And so Pilate says to Jesus, you're not going to speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And what does Jesus say to Pilate? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. All the authority that Pilate had to crucify Jesus was given by God to Pilate. The Father gave Pilate the authority and Pilate was completely responsible for how he used his authority. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. But God had given him authority. Why? Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's pleasure to crush him. Why? Because it's only by the wounds of Jesus that we can be healed of the eternal death that resides in our souls because of sin. Why did it please the Lord to crush him? Because it's only when he has completed his work on the cross that we can be completely restored to fellowship with God. Why did God do it? Because it's only when the blood and the water flow from the wounded side of Jesus that we can be cleansed by the blood and that we can be baptized with the Spirit. Why does God do it? Because the love of God towards sinful men and women like you and me glorifies God and it will do so for all eternity. Behold the glory of Jesus. He's attested by mighty works, by wonders, by signs. Consider the life of Jesus. All that he did, all that he was, all that he spoke. Behold the sin of men and women who saw what he was attested to be and chose instead to crucify and to kill him. And in his crucifixion, as you hear the hammer of the nails, see your sin, see my sin, driving the nails, fastening him to the wood. Consider the cross and remember what our rebellion against God brings and then wonder that Jesus has taken the wrath of God upon himself. 
Behold the wisdom and the love of God who delivered up Jesus, his very son, by a plan that he had set in motion before the beginning of time. You see the depth and the riches of God's unfathomable love. How do we respond to such love? I don't know how I how you comprehend what's here, except to press into it more and more, to seek to understand it more and more, to try to understand the unknowable love of God, the purposes of God for us, to let it press on you, to stand and stare at it for a little while or for a long while. How wonderful, too, that we get to join together and to take up the bread and the cup to remember Christ crucified. This is a great mystery, what God has done for us in salvation. And so we take a wonderful, mysterious meal together and we proclaim the mysterious and wonderful mystery of the broken body of Jesus, of the shed blood of Jesus. And we announce that God in this, as well as in the resurrection and the ascension, has made Jesus Lord and Christ. This bread, this cup, they do not save us. They have no salvific effect on our lives, but alongside with Scripture, they in some wonderful way open the door for us to enter into the wonder of what God has done for us in salvation. That's my hope. My hope is that in meditating and looking and considering and allowing God's Spirit to apply the depth of what these verses mean to us and not fully understanding it, but, but pressing in to know the love of God for us and then following up that we would take the bread and the cup and we would let God's Spirit through this meal handed down by Jesus Himself to us given by Jesus so that we could pause and think about his broken body on our behalf and his shed blood that brings us salvation, that somehow we might see, we might feel, we might understand the majesty of what God has done for us in his death and his resurrection. It's impossible apart from the Spirit, but the Spirit delights to exalt Christ. And I believe that the Spirit, when He comes, delights also to give us a new and a fresh and a deeper understanding of God's love. He is a Spirit who shows us and reveals to us the fathomless love of God. Let's pray that He would do that now. I invite you into a moment of silence, and then I will pray. Then Jake will come, and we will distribute the bread and take it together and then do the same with the cup. But let's take a moment of silence. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, by your spirit, through your word, and through the gift of this meal that you have given to us, we ask that you would help us to know your love for us in a deeper way. Lord, reveal our sin to us. Help us to see our rebellion against you. And help us to see this wonderful plan of redemption from planned from the very beginning and a display of your glory, a display of your deep, deep love for us. Let's call this in Jesus' name.